0: This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to OneandAll.media. This is not a political message. This is a biblical message. There are public, social, and governmental policies that stink of systemic racism, and we Christians should be standing up and saying, "Oh no, no, not on our watch!" Today, 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 with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher.
1: Hello, my name is Bill and welcome. This is Today with Jeff Vines, podcast, broadcast and available online. Today, Pastor Jeff brings us a message in the Reset series. He talks about racial unrest around the world. It's a message about serving God completely and speaking out against evil aimed at our neighbours, about seeing all people through God's eyes, loving them as God does. Let's begin with Pastor Jeff in Joshua chapter
0: 7. As we come together this weekend, I'm reminded of the fact that we are a family. Uh, The Bible mentions numerous times that we are God's new community in the world, that we are to love one another, care for one another. I'm seated this weekend because there are times that I feel it is important to have more of a family discussion, one that comes from the heart, deep within the recesses of the heart. Sometimes pastors are motivated by great burdens. And when they speak on topics like this, I I gotta tell you from the get-go that I need grace. In fact, I need not just a little, I need a lot. The reason is, is because I've made it a habit in my life not to talk about something unless I had sufficient information, unless I had a great amount of understanding. And if you think about it, that's a pretty good policy. But at the same time, if I don't speak about this now, I feel that my silence will speak more than my words ever could. And I would ask you to listen to the message that I'm about to bring on the basis of what you know about me in the past. Would you be willing to interpret the words through the lens of what you know to be true about my heart, who I am and my love for you and for all people? Can you do that? The reason that's important is because our nation right now is so divided. Everyone's shouting, no one's really truly listening. We have witnessed violence against the black community, violence against the police community, violence against communities and businesses that are innocent bystanders. And to make matters worse, in the mainstream media, politicize everything for money and for power. This has been going on for decades. We have systemic corruption everywhere. And we are not walking humbly with our God, nor have we done so in a very long time. Folks, we have to come to the conclusion that our justice system today is broken. But like all things that are broken, it can be mended. It can be put back together, restored. But this will not happen without leadership and a great amount of effort. And in my opinion, not without the church speaking up against all evil. Now, can I ask you again to stay with me, to not anticipate where you think I'm going or what I'm going to say. This is not a political message. This is a biblical message. I'm interested in what the creator and sustainer of our universe would do. What would Jesus do? To help us understand this, I... I feel incredibly privileged to have met President Kagame in Rwanda. And as I walked through those prisons the first time after the genocide, now, some of you may not be familiar with the topic of discussion, but in 1994, we had over a million uh, Tutsis slaughtered by the majority Hutus. It was a genocide orchestrated from the very top. Kagame, as the incoming president, had to find a solution to bring peace and reconciliation to his people. When I sat before Kagami, I asked him the question and I saw this on the looks of the faces of the prisoners, who even though they participated in the genocide were still quite confused after all had happened, thinking how on earth did this happen in our country? Even though I'm guilty, how did it happen? And Kagame said there were four players He says, for any atrocity to occur, you always have four players. You have the orchestrators, those who are at the very top, who are making decisions, who are systematic in their policies. They had but one objective, and that is to annihilate the minority Tutsis from the population. But just underneath those who orchestrated the policy are those in local positions of authority and power, And they kind of knew that something evil was about to occur, but they didn't do anything about it because there's a part of them that agreed with it. And then you had the third level, the communities that surrounded, that made up most of Rwanda. And these communities suspected that something evil was happening but because they were in the majority, they thought to themselves, well, this is bad, but what can I do? My life is okay. In fact, my life is getting better, so I'm not going to rock the boat. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And then Kagami says that the fourth category are those who know that something's happening, that it's pure evil, but they're just apathetic, so they do nothing about it. Many Hutus knew exactly what was going on, but they simply didn't do anything about it. Many saw the corporate systemic evil that was going on, the systemic racism that was happening. They knew about the orchestrated effort to destroy the Tutsi population. They knew about segregation by documentation. One of the first steps government did was force the Tutsi and the Hutu to carry around a booklet, identifying who they were, to what tribe they belonged. They were denied the best jobs, the best education, and there was a national media manipulation to gather a type of uh, discrimination against the minority. You know, I never thought about that meeting with Kagami the way I have in recent days. I also remembered the same was true in the Holocaust. At the very top, you had Hitler and his sycophants. And hundreds and hundreds of leaders designed a systematic killing machine But just underneath them, you had guards and social workers and government workers, both local and national, who were just following orders. In fact, at the Nuremberg trials, the generals of the Third Reich and even those who were working in local law enforcement and local social programs denied their guilt by saying that they were just obeying the laws of their land. So we can't be held responsible. We were just doing, we were just following the system that we were a part of, therefore we have no legal uh, or we do not need a legal defense. We were just obeying the laws of our land until finally the American lawyer who was leading the charge against the Third Reich threw his hand up in the air in frustration and said, wait a minute, gentlemen, isn't there a law above our laws? (laughs) Isn't there a law above our laws? So there's the orchestrator's of the Third Reich, there are the local officials working under the orchestration. And then there are the townspeople. All of Germany who suspected something horrible was going on, but just thought, well, it doesn't really affect my day-to-day life. In fact, my life is getting better. In fact, when Eisenhower and the American troops came in to the concentration camps of Ravensburg or Auschwitz in Germany, wherever they were, he forced the local townspeople to come in and witness the atrocities that had been committed so that no one could deny these atrocities in the future. So you have entire communities seeing human ash flow out of the chimneys who are somewhat suspicious but refuse to believe what is actually happening. Eisenhower forced them to come in when the war had ended and actually bury many of the dead bodies left behind. And we are told that people in the community were. Frustrated so much to the point they were terrorized that many committed suicide, that somehow this could happen on their watch. And then, of course, you had that first tier or fourth tier rather of just everyday German citizens that suspected evil, hated evil, but just didn't have time to do anything about it. They were apathetic. So, in both cases, there were levels of responsibility. However, the only way the genocide could have worked, the only way The the atrocities of the Third Reich could have occurred as if every level, every level works in full cooperation and in operation either by ignorance or by intention. No way could you create a system that kills so many people if everyone in those tiers were not cooperating to some degree. Although it has been quoted and misquoted many times, it was actually John Stuart Mill. In 1867, who said these words, Bad men need nothing more to compass their ends than that good men should look on and do nothing. I'm not suggesting for a moment or even comparing the Rwandan genocide and the Jewish Holocaust with what's happening in our country today. I only bring them up to illustrate a systemic corporate evil that exists in our nation. A systemic... Racism. I love this nation and I love this people. I've lived in other places for the majority of my life and I can tell you that with all our faults, America is still the greatest country, the greatest nation on earth. But part of our greatness is that we have been overcomers, that no matter how bad things get, the Judean Christian worldview, the Judeo-Christian worldview emerges from the dusty dungeons and forces us to ask the question, who are we really? And the truth is that few nations on on the planet recognize this about us. Unfortunately, when it comes to racism, a big part of our problem is this. Western society tends to think in individualistic terms. You know, I heard this in the South growing up throughout my entire life. The person who says, I never owned slaves. I'm not prejudiced. I cried when I saw the movie, Mississippi Burning. What my ancestors did was terrible, but I'm not responsible for what my ancestors did in the past. I'm not responsible for something someone else does. And the reason you say that is because you're part of a Western society where individualism is primary. And you did not get that from the Bible. Can you drop your defensive walls just for a moment. Can I show you something? In Joshua 7, the children of Israel are coming into the promised land and they are clearly told as they over- overcome these nations not to plunder their goods. Achan, a member of a family, takes was, does not belong to him, but as a result, his entire family Parents, grandparents, brothers, his entire family are punished. You and I look at that and we think, what? He's the one who did it. That's why parts of the Bible are offensive to you because of your cultural location. Not always. But if you think the whole world thinks like you do, don't you think you might have just a literal cultural narrowness somehow that there's a pride in you? Because the reality is in this case, this Bible story in Joshua 7, most of the world understands that we are products of our family, that it takes a village to raise a family. And sometimes they don't do a very good job of it. Families produce offspring good and sometimes bad. Your family actively and passively participates in your guilt and in your goodness by the culture it establishes within the family unit. So Joshua 7 reminds us that there is a corporate responsibility inside every family that what our members do reflects all of us. Actually, there's a pretty powerful verse in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 15, that says this, a rod and a reprimand impart wisdom, but a child left undisciplined disgraces its mother. The idea basically is this. And by the way, rod is not the rod of torture. Rod is like the rod of a shepherd who guides and leads the sheep back into safety. So the verse is basically telling us that a parent who does not continually correct the path of a child, that child will be an embarrassment to the parents and the family in public. There is responsibility. Then we come to Daniel 9. When Daniel prays, he assumes corporate guilt for something that his ancestors did. His prayer is definitely one that we should all read because he speaks of families and grandparents and parents that he had absolutely nothing to do with and members of his community that... He did. He never even met, and yet in his prayer in Daniel nine, he repents on behalf of generations before him. Let me read to you a section: Daniel nine four through six. Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors. And to all the people of the land. This is crucial. There's a common saying in the South again. I never owned slaves. I'm not a racist. I am nice to those people. So why do I have any responsibility to that community? Daniel prays and repents for the things that his ancestors did. And the reason is he knows that he's part of a culture. A system that produced the sins of the past. And he's still part of that culture. He senses... The connection and a type of shared responsibility. And then we come to that classic passage in Romans chapter 5, where we witness classic federal theology. Paul went way beyond faith and family, way beyond culture, and into the very core of the human race to teach us that by virtue of the human race, all of us are condemned. Remember the verse in Romans five twelve. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin. When Adam sinned, death came into the world. And in this way, death came to all of us because all sin. So there is a connection that we have to Adam. Somehow we inherited his physical DNA. Even though we're not guilty of sin until we commit sin, all of us have a propensity towards sin. There is a system in which we live, in which we are reared. The good news is that Paul says, however, because we have a connection to Jesus Christ, we are saved. Not because of anything we did, but because of a new system. Now we have a connection to Christ, and in that system, we relate to God on the basis of grace, not law, and are therefore saved. So, When I speak of systemic evil and systemic racism, please let me define it. I mean this, a system that excludes and marginalizes people on the basis of race, even though most people in the system are not intentionally trying to do it. You hear me on that? I gotta say that again. We're talking about a system that excludes and marginalizes people on the basis of race, even though most people, Those last two tiers, sometimes the last three, are not intentionally trying to do it. So the individuals are not for the systemic evil or racism, but they're, by nature of involvement, part of a system that's doing it. So there is some guilt by association. And the question I have for all of us who are Christ followers, do we have eyes to see places in this country where systemic racism exists. Please listen to the end. Please. We who are in the white majority, we don't like that phrase. And part of that is good news in the sense that we don't like it because we know racism's wrong. That's a good start. We celebrate movies that actually conquer it. I was in the theater when I saw Remember the Titans and Denzel Washington bridges the gap between white and black. And we cheered. I remember seeing Mississippi burning, same thing. You had all of these people, most middle aged white people, watching this movie. And they cheered when racism was overcome and when those who were responsible for it were brought to justice. They cheered. Recently, there's a, a movie called Just Mercy. It's an incredible movie about a Harvard law grad who's African American, goes back down to his home in the South and begins to defend African Americans who are on death row with a lack of sufficient evidence against them. They had no voice. They are executed without fair representation. We love our country so much that we feel when somebody uses the term systemic racism that it means that every ounce of every corner of every part of our country is racist. And quite frankly, as a white male, I don't even... Know that. I can't even know that because I'm white. But what I am saying is this. There is public, there are public social and governmental policies, both local and national, that stink of systemic racism. And we Christians should be standing up and saying, oh no, not on our watch. And we're all guilty. My hometown if I were to go back there today, I could take you to the part of my hometown where all of the black community live. It is a community that has received the least assistance in social programs, in education, in any social service. And part of the reason is that the way it's set up is that the taxes collected from a certain part of the community go back into that community for schools and social services. So there is a vicious cycle because the lowest wages are earned in that community, which means there are less taxes, which means there are less social services, which means there is least education. And that is repeated again and again and again. How systemic? I don't know. You know, when I was playing basketball in high school, between my junior and senior year, my coach sat me down in the locker room and said, look, I know you've uh, been the captain of the basketball team. And you gotta know when you're in a small town, if you're the center, you're, if you're the pivot man, I mean, you're like a God with a small G, free, free haircuts, uh, uh, free uh, cheeseburgers, it, it's the works. Because that's all some of these small towns have, is their athletic programs, their pride in their basketball team. My coach sat me down he said, Jeff, uh, we've got a student coming to our school for the next year. And I just want to give you a little heads up. His name is James Henry. Uh, he's African American. He's from the Virgin Islands. And he's 6'9 and about 250 pounds. And it was coach's way of saying to me, basically, your, your days of playing the pivot man are over. Now, I was fine with the meeting. But then I go out into the community and I had so many people come to me and say, hey, this is not fair. You've earned the privilege. It's your right. You're entitled to to have that position because you're from this community. Now, what was amazing about this entire scenario was when James Henry arrived, I quickly noticed that James Henry was one of those men. He was impossible not to like. (laughs) And James and I became best friends. I remember visiting James in his home the first time and his parents looked at me like, are you lost? To show you the division. Now, the problem is that I learned so much about the African-American community in my hometown through my relationship with James. I did nothing about it. And I had a voice. You say, well, you were young. Yeah, but even at a very young age, I had a keen interest in social studies. I had a very keen interest in civil programs, and justice, but I did nothing. I look back at that now and I wonder why, why? And I think it's because my life was going fine. And now I realize that even then at a very young age, I was part of a system, system designed somehow intentionally by some, unintentionally by others to keep my friend's family down. But I was saying nothing. I know we've come a long way in the United States, I get that. But we've not come far enough. How can we say we've come far enough until there is absolute equality? The only thing worse than ignorance is apathy. And there's no way I can pretend to know the ins and outs of this issue. How can I? I'm part of the majority. I can tell you this though, because I lived on foreign soil for 10 years, I have experienced racism. When I lived in Zimbabwe, I was the minority. When my wife and I would cross borders between South Africa and Zimbabwe, they would often hold me in a room for two and three hours in a hot room with no air conditioning just because I was white. I got used to it. I remember one time I bought the very best tickets to go to a soccer game between Zimbabwe and the Congo. And I came and I stood in line. And because I was white, everyone shoved me to the back. And yes, it was because I was white. And somebody looked at me and I said, but I bought a ticket. And the response was, yeah, welcome to Zimbabwe, my white friend. Basically, said these words, What are you doing here? Why are you here? (laughs) That can't even begin to compare with the experiences of our African American brothers and sisters here in our country.
1: You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff.
0: We're all clothed with Christ, no matter what color. We're clothed with Jesus. Romans 5 tells us that God sees us through the lens of community, how we treat one another, that we are God's new community in the world. So the question is, what is this community going to do to defeat systemic racism and corporate evil in our world? You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for
1: Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts.